Welcome to another episode of Forgotten Cello Music, coming to you from Traveling Cello. Hi, I'm Aaron. I must say a word of thanks right from the start. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I sent out a message of asking for your show of support and show me some kindness and apparently some of you responded so when I asked about increasing the listenership for my podcast it was at the low 20s and as of now it is steady at 28 for about a week so it's increased not a whole lot but the numbers are going up Thank you very much for that. Now, uh, providing you have the time and you want to show even more support, more kindness, please go back and listen to some older episodes. I have posted some questions and some polls. Um, I, I guess they are only available if you view or watch, listen on Spotify as as far as I can tell. So if you do use Spotify, please go there. Look at the questions. Some of them are kind of uh, just basic questions. Uh, anyway, I'm trying new ways, new avenues to engage people. I'm still learning and I'm still uh, trying to be more... Um, uh, accessible, more interesting. Um, being sociable has never been one of my strong points, but um, I, I'm at least giving it a go. Another way you can help me out <clears throat> is by going to my videos, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and watching the videos, commenting, and above all, like the videos, um, I have heard and seen in other YouTube reports about search engine ranking that just the the act of getting comments and likes really increases the ranking in your in a search. Now, obviously, I'm not going to suddenly shoot to way up in the top 100 uh, results because I only get a dozen listeners or viewers per video on average. But it will help, you know. Everybody's got to start somewhere. But that's the way it is, and I'm doing my best. I'm putting in lots of hours. This is something that I really genuinely enjoy, and I hope that it comes across that way. I know that sometimes I get uh, very... Uh, austere with myself and it comes across in videos sometimes so I'm doing my best to steer away from that and retain a more uh, even keeled demeanor and with that you know all the the support you've shown so far thank you very much now a little bit about my cello it is not adjusting very well I I feel like the sound, the character of the instrument is quite good. Um, 
But with all of the new equipment, a bridge, a sound post, tailpiece, which I wasn't expecting to have, and new bow hair, it just is finding it hard to adjust, I think. Response time is a little bit lagging, and it's unclear. It's kind of not clean. And granted, some of it is my fault. I'm not the the most correctest bower in the world. Um, but it certainly was not that unclean, unclear beforehand. So I think my cello was not expecting all of that change, and it's hopefully going to be good enough where I feel okay. I can do some do some more recording <clears throat> and get out a new video and a new podcast episode with some new playing on it. Now, today's episode is uh, a look, an overview look at this treatise. And I'm doing it uh, mostly because when my cello was in the shop, I decided to take a, a little side trip when I discovered this treatise in the reading of The Violin Cello and His History by Joseph Vasilevsky. So anybody that's been listening, I have already referred to this and quoted from this book multiple times in past episodes. And uh, it's a it's a fascinating book. I really enjoy using it, and I, I genuinely enjoy reading it too because there's so much information. Uh, kind of harks back to my undergrad undergraduate days where I actually did read tons and tons of these historical books or books on the history of the cello, for example. And uh, it was time well spent because I, I kind of do like history things. So without further ado, I'd like to begin with Broderip and Wilkinson's Treaties for the Violoncello. Now, not to bore you, but I think it's worth noting the contents of it in general because it informs us of what we can expect in this treatise. And obviously it's a treatise, so it's going to be talking about all of the fundamental things that goes into not only cello playing, but reading music and playing the music. So to go through it quickly... It is, it's got this preface where it tells a little bit about the history and, the, and that currents, the current thinking and attitude toward cello playing 200 years ago. And it has lots of examples, and uh, it has the gamut, the notes that are available to be played. Then we have... Um, the tuning of the violoncello, and it's notated for all four strings. Then we have of bars, example of note names and notation, uh, with complete with multi-measure multi rests afterward. Then of time, so it goes through the notation of meters, including triplet notation. Then of beating time, so we've got notation for each meter, and it goes through all of the iterations that a beginner would need 
to read music well and play effectively. After that, of flats, sharps, and naturals, and then of keys. So it goes through all of the keys. <clears throat> and each measure is uh, notated with the tonic note, of course. Then the art of bowing, the art uh, of graces, which goes through trills, etc., grace notes. And uh, I made a, a little video about this where I played some examples and uh, showed sluggish fingers. Then we've got staccato marks, all the notes on the cello, the tenor cliff, as they called it back then, C-L-I-F-F. -F. Of course, we call it the clef today, C-L-E-F, the alto cliff of shifting. This is quite extraordinary that they go through shifting for a beginner's treaties, and they have examples of shifting, so where to shift, on which notes to shift, or after which notes you shift. Then we have notating all the keys with every semitone marked by dots. Now this is very interesting. This is an example by Cervetto, which um, I will address a little bit uh, in a later section. And then notating principal chords in arpeggios and then practicable keys. That's pretty interesting. So they only utilize the practicable keys for the beginners. Uh, and I say it's interesting because there are keys signatures in there that are not used. Uh, for example, if you take Suzuki, E major is not used until, I think, book four. And let's see, there was a super flat key. I think it was D flat major. That's not used in any of Suzuki. Ooh, any cello books? I mean, if you play Verdi or Wagner, I suppose. And the last of all, we have easy lessons for first practice. And easy lessons, this is actual music right here, as in musical examples and such. And uh, 10 short lessons for practice, very cool. Uh, lots of useful short lessons like two measures, four measures, six measures, eight measures. And uh, as far as music, finally we have a total of 24 duets and solos. So combined, there are a number of duets and a number of solos, altogether 24 of them. And at the very end, one page of a dictionary. Now to take a little bit closer look, a little bit of a dive under the surface at the prevailing ways in which cello playing was approached in the 18th century and later. And that's really what this exploration of this treatise is all about for me at this point. I'd like to point out that this is by no means a new discovery by me. I mean, after all, it was uploaded to IMSLP. But then I, in my searching for various elements within the, the treaties. Uh, Google spit out a bunch of books that had referenced this. And these are books all the way through the 20th century. Basically, I am looking into its contents and you know, pulling information out of it. I want the insights of this 
treaties. I want the thoughts. I mean, they they wrote a lot, um, not just in the preface, but throughout all of the examples. There's lots of writing, paragraphs worth, and it shows how people were thinking at that time. You know, how how do you approach learning an instrument from brand new, from nothing? Next, I... Secondly, I personally find this sort of historical content helpful and interesting. Uh, there's useful notation, like learning ornamentation in the Baroque period. Then also there's terminology in the English language when we're learning music and playing music that in some cases have been altered, uh, I guess, by time and then there are others that just have remained the same. Cliff is an interesting one. It's basically the same. Um, who knows? You could ask a linguist, but maybe it was pronounced clef instead of cliff, clef, and now it's just spelled the way it sounds. I don't know. Um, the musical examples that are in here are uh, kind of like a picture in time as to what was fashionable for students, uh, maybe what would even catch their attention while learning the basics. I mean, we do the same thing today. Uh, that's rather interesting to me. And third, this type of period treaties, I think potentially provides me with new material, both for presenting in this podcast and also on a practical note, for teaching my own students. Um, I'm always looking for new material, inter interesting material that can uh, bring a little more life to a lesson. So who knows? Some of my students may find this material in there. Now some observations on terminology. Uh, sometimes words used to describe a specific character are left unchanged by time, as I've said before, and uh, we continue on using those terminologies, those words, up to the present time. And in other cases, those words, for some reason, have changed. And there are a number of examples that are interesting to go through. So as far as the same word usage. We've got, you know, the scale, the string names, we call them in English A, D, G, C, from highest to lowest, and e even we number the strings, one, two, three, four, first, second, third, fourth strings, from the A down to the C. Uh, we still say shift, shifting. Uh, a lot of these things, bowing, slurring, they're the same today. A uh, different terminology is the cliff. Now, this just occurred to me, like in the previous section, where maybe it was pronounced in England, cliff. And only in modern times have we changed the spelling to meet the pronunciation. I don't know. We'll have to ask a linguist, I think, or search it out. <clears throat> now, something that has remained the same in England but has changed in America is the names or types of notes. Our 
uh, whole half quarter notes are respectively semi brev minim crotchet in Britain. And who knows why we decided to go with the fr uh, the whole half quarter. Uh, my guess is that it's a German influence because the Germans also say whole half quarter, obviously in German. Um, maybe. It's another question to be answered on another day. Then what I find fascinating in the meter is that Okay, so of time, we still say time, but we we call it simply time or, or meter or time signature, which is time. But they term it common time moods and triple time moods, mood as in M-O-O-D. And I am relatively certain they call it a meter or a time signature in, in England these these days and not moods, but if I'm wrong, I'd like to know. Uh, who knows why they called it moods, but I personally think that it ha it's a good word to use because we certainly use different time signatures for different moods in pieces. Um, dances are definitely different moods than marches, for example. I think that's a, a pretty obvious one to point out. And then a shake. This is, I guess, our trill. And again, more research is necessary. But nonetheless, really interesting insights into how they wrote and talked. What is the intention of this episode right in the middle of it now after 15 minutes but okay I'm going to highlight it for you now anyway basically it's just to find insightful historical methods and this is one of them and then another is to dig out uh, a representative number of studies and musical selections from this treatise uh, again just basically to uh provide me with more material for these kind of uh, activities or to give to my students. And who knows? Maybe reading these kind of historical treaties will give me a little food for thought in how I not only play or approach my own playing, uh, but also how I teach. It, it might. Could be helpful. Uh... Now, as far as content, there are actual easy lessons and musical examples that are provided by the, the virtuoso uh, Jacobe Basse de Cervetto, Mr. Cervetto, who was an Italian. Uh, I think he lived in England for the last 50 years of his life, so he moved there when he was 41, and he died when he was 101, I believe. And it, it's just, it, it really is fascinating to me that they provided little lessons, little exercises for their students. It was not just dry, do it this way, do it that way. 
there were teachers out there, and I, 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 he can't be the only one. I'm sure there must be thousands of examples if we could just find them. Or if we can't find them, you know, there must have been teachers doing the same thing. Um, I do, however, when it comes to a beginning cellist, now in my experience as a teacher, I've been teaching cello for 20 years, and every time you give a beginner string crossings, uh, with 99% of the students I have taught, it is a, it's a huge barrier to playing smoothly, to playing in tune, just basically being able to do it. String crossings uh, are a very significant coordination hurdle. It's an obstacle. And doing the string crossing, you know, preparing the student obviously helps a lot. But there's only so much a teacher can do. The student really has to be able to sit down and think about it and play it. Uh, there are, in these examples, so many string crossings. And they don't seem to be all that regular in terms of going from down bow to up bow or to any certain finger. So this is a huge obstacle for beginners. And personally, when I'm teaching, I like to give students uh, some easy successes early on and, uh, and practices they can do at home without having to put too much effort into it. And that way they, they can, and that means play on one string. You know, develop good posture, good technique, be able to press the string down, and then work on open string, string crossing. That, to me, is, has been quite successful in teaching students to improve fairly quickly. Now these musical selections, there are 24 musical selections, like as in real music. This is really interesting, uh, like more so than the all the preceding sections. And that's saying a lot because I've said so much about how interesting the first section was and all the, uh, the practices. <laughs> this music contains... Um, not only transcriptions uh, from operas, which we are very accustomed to in the classical uh, beginner's realm, and also folk music, but there is there is um, folk music like as in fiddle music. This is pretty interesting. Scottish and Irish fiddle music. I think it just goes to show that uh, just like Suzuki and other method writers were doing and are doing, taking popular tunes or tunes that are well-known and teaching students with those things. Yeah, they were doing the same thing back then. is the end of this podcast I unfortunately do not have any selections to share with you but I do hope that this has been 
interesting enough that you want to hear musical selections in the next episode that is including musical selections from this treatise that was compiled by Broderip and Wilkinson with selections by the virtuoso Cervetto. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, and remember to play more forgotten cello music. <laughs>